Welcome to NextWorks Innovation Talks. Let our podcast inspire you with inside stories and conversations about innovation. Welcome to the NextWorks Innovation Talks. I'm your host, Laurence van Eerlingen, and today I'll be talking to Professor Louis Dortnell. Louis is a research scientist specialized in astrobiology and the author of four books, among which the bestsellers, The Knowledge and Origins. So welcome on the show, Louis. Thank you so much for joining us. Hello, Lawrence. Thank you ever so much for, for inviting me on. So you wrote a book with a quite monumental title, The Knowledge on How to Rebuild Civilization in the Aftermath of a Cataclysm. <laughs> so what can we learn from that in the face of COVID-19 and possible other future pandemics? Yeah, so um, just to give a bit of background on that book, uh, Knowledge was my last book, my previous book, And I'm a research scientist. I work in a lab in the university. Uh, I'm not a prepper. I'm not a survivalist. <laughs> But what I wanted to write with this book, with the knowledge, was the answer to a thought experiment. If we imagine, for whatever reason, whatever hypothetical reason, the world as we know it disappears tomorrow. You know, there's some kind of nuclear war or asteroid strike or some kind of catastrophe that we've all seen happen in the movies, in the cinema. But let's just imagine it happens and you wake up tomorrow morning needing to know how to go about recovering everything from scratch. How could you reboot civilization itself in the way you would reboot a computer after it's crashed? What are the key skills and knowledge about how things are made and done that you would need to um, recover and pull yourself up, back up by your own bootstraps. So in a sense, um, the knowledge actually doesn't have anything at all to do with the end of the world. It's, it's not really an apocalypse book. It's a book about how our world works behind the scenes, the things we just take for granted in our everyday normal lives. And I wanted to explore how all that stuff works, but by imagining that it wasn't there tomorrow and you had to know how to do it for yourself. So like I say, it's not really a, a prepper book, but on page one of the knowledge, I suppose that one of these potential apocalypses might be something like a global pandemic that spreads very rapidly around the world and wipes out a very large percentage of, of the human race. So That's not what we're seeing with coronavirus, with COVID-19. It, it is a global pandemic. It is very, very serious, but it is not going to collapse you know, human civilization. It's not going to end the world as we know it. But I think the sort of lessons that I talk about in the knowledge, in the book, are still very applicable to all of us today, particularly during lockdown with this coronavirus, because the book is all about appreciating everything that we take for granted. It's all about being slightly more proactive at working out and teaching yourself and learning how to make and do simple things for yourself. Because with the beginning of the lockdown, we saw people no longer able to get to supermarkets easily. And certainly in the UK, things like toilet paper and flour and other basic necessities just started evaporating, that they weren't easily readily available anymore. So that's the, the sort of area that I explore in this book, that the knowledge about where things come from and how you could do it for yourself if you ever really needed to. Mm -hmm. but, but again, like I say, coronavirus is having and is going to have huge economic and financial 
and mental health implications for very many people around the world, but it is not going to collapse you know, civilization as we know it. But maybe it could change the things that we take for granted, because you said that the book is about that too, but like you said, we took for granted that we could go outside and do all kinds of things, and then everything became more limited. Yeah, this global pandemic could change things. And indeed, personally, I hope very much that it does change things. And I think one potential silver lining could be that we now get to make a decision. We get to make a choice about what we want the world to look like afterwards. We, we can make that decision individually and collectively as a society. And particularly with this you know, huge crisis that's on our doorstep of climate change and global warming, we can make some decisions now that will have a huge impact and huge influence on our response to global warming in terms of you know, not jumping straight back onto an airplane to go on a holiday far away from where you live once lockdown starts easing. Mm -hmm. and, and doing not just flights, but all these other things that we know we need to be doing less of or be doing more considerately um, in order to protect our environment and protect the, the world that ultimately supports for us. So as the global economy starts re-emerging after coronavirus, then might be the perfect time to start making some deep infrastructure changes to the way that things are done and, and make a change for the better. One of the things I had to think about when I thought about your book is one of the great quotes by Carl Sagan, who said 25 years ago that we live in a society absolutely dependent on science and technology and yet have cleverly arranged things so that almost no one understands science and technology. And I think he may have a point in that this makes our situation highly fragile. Do you agree with that? Yes, yeah, certainly the way that the modern world works is very technological. And ultimately, the technology is built on our scientific understanding, our fundamental understanding of how the universe and physical laws work. So the modern world of highly advanced pharmaceuticals and surgery and electronics and the internet and all of the industrial chemistry that we use and all the you know advanced agricultural techniques we use to provide for all of our lives every day is very technological, is very scientific. And so naturally, necessarily, that means that most people, unless you are a trained scientist, probably don't have a huge level of understanding about the nitty-gritty, the details of how all of that works. And I mean, that's fine, because for a society to work, you need some people who are trained to be nurses and doctors, some people who are trained to work in factories, some people who are trained to be the scientists, some people are trained to be the accountants. You know, a society works because each individual in that society is expert in their particular role and doesn't need to know what everybody else is doing. But I think what we're also seeing in terms of this trend, this theme we've been talking about, about what people take for granted, is that perhaps concerningly, science has been getting so successful in providing for us that people are taking it too much for granted, such that they've forgotten what it would have been like otherwise. And I think a very good example of this is the anti-vax movement. Mm -hmm. People who are choosing to not vaccinate their children because they think that vaccinating children is potentially more harmful than the alternative. And you, you, I, I think it's fair to say that these people 
they're not idiots. They have made what they believe to be an informed decision for the sole purpose of protecting the people they love, their children. And you, you can't fault someone for making that decision. But I think that decision is still, nonetheless, based on falsity. It's based on a false understanding of the relative risk of dying, you know, 100 years ago. You, you, the, the probability that a child would have died before their fifth birthday of measles or mumps or rubella or cholera or typhoid, etc., 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 We've forgotten how bad things were before modern medicine and in particular modern vaccinations. And so I think that is the sort of thing that Carl Sagan was getting into in, in that particular quote, is that when science becomes so successful as it has and so important in our modern world, it's so permeated into how everything is done that it effectively becomes invisible. People stop noticing it and therefore stop appreciating the role that it's playing. So... Talking about the fact that we take things too much for granted, do you think that it could be useful to teach these basic skills in school? Not so much because uh, children might need them after a cataclysmic event, obviously, but because it might be, it might have an impact um, on the way that they think and view the world, and perhaps become a little bit more critical about, like you said, taking an, an airplane or, or maybe think more critical about food and things like that? Yeah, it, it's a good point. And what you need your education system, what you need your schools to do is train the younger generation in the knowledge and skills that they need to perform a useful role for society, to help each other out for the next generation of society. And It is true that nowadays you don't need everyone in society to understand how to grow their own food as a farmer or how to work timber or metal or how to grind up particular botanical preparations to serve as, you know, kind of um, folk medicines because society and civilization does that very, very effectively for you. There are experts that fill in those gaps and we all work together. So I'm not saying that schools should start teaching the basics of how to smelt metal or grow food. All these other things I talk about as the fundamentals for civilization in the book, in the knowledge, but because clearly that would be crazy. Mm -hmm. But I think what is important is for people to have some kind of understanding of how things are working behind the scenes, because I think that will give you a more fulfilled appreciation of what is going on. But also, I think, train people not in remembering scientific facts, but training people to think a little more scientifically. Mm -hmm. And the idea here is that science isn't a collection of facts and figures. Science is a process. Science is a way of thinking, a way of studying the world around you so that you can be confident that the answers you come up with are, are true answers. And by thinking a little bit more scientifically, a little bit more critically, a little bit more analytically, that will hopefully stop people being lulled into things like the anti-vax movement or the huge numbers of you know, crazy sounding conspiracy theories that are washing back and forth across the internet and Facebook at the moment about things like you know, 5G mobile phone masts are for mind control or the coronavirus was released deliberately as a bioweapon uh, by China. You know, you know what I mean? There's, you mm -hmm. can make up these alluring conspiracy theories 
And unless you think about them critically before just hitting retweet or share on Facebook, that lie will be on the other side of the planet before anyone's had time to think about it. And, and so that's why I think it's important for people to think a little bit more scientifically, a little bit more rationally. Mm-hmm. Of course, there are more and more people who are saying this, that we need to teach the younger generations and the older generations too, mm. to think more scientifically and, and more critically. But it's very hard. Like you said, the people believing in conspiracy theories or the anti-vaxxers who, are, who cannot be all of them idiots. So how would you go about that? So I, I wonder if perhaps what would be a useful thing to focus on in school syllabus, school curriculums. Mm-hmm. For example, in science lessons, to have slightly less focus on can you label this diagram of the anatomical parts of a flower? Can you write for a 10-mark essay question the steps of DNA replication? Whatever it is we teach our children in in biology and science. But to train certain modes of thought which are more analytical, problem-solving and and, and kind of creative uh, analytical skills rather than school being quite so much about exercises of memory. And again, to, to give another potential silver lining to this coronavirus global pandemic. I teach at university, I I lecture at the University of Westminster in London, and clearly with the coronavirus lockdown, we've not been able to lecture students 200 people at a time in a lecture theatre, but also we've not been able to have exams in the traditional way we'd have exams, of putting people on desks in a big open room and get them to write out their essay questions in, you know, biro on on a piece of paper. And instead... We've had to have online exams, which are open book exams. You cannot know that someone isn't going to be going to Wikipedia to look something up. So you cannot have your exam being an exercise in recall or memory. And instead, your exams now have to be much more interpretive and analytical. The sort of thing that you can't easily look up, but you can only score well by explaining and arguing if you understand, deeply understand, truly understand the processes behind what's going on and what you're being asked about. And I would like that after this coronavirus, that perhaps schools and universities won't test and examine their students on how well they've learned something or how well they can remember a fact or a figure, but how well they can demonstrate that they understand it and they can solve problems with that knowledge um, in a sort of open book style, style exam. That's a really interesting approach. But I wonder, how did they score? Did they score better? Did they score less? How how did that work? Well, we're moderating all of the um, exam results now, but it does look that the students have done as well this year with all of the challenges and problems and hurdles of the coronavirus lockdown as they did last year under the more traditional style of examination of slightly more fact-based or, or recollection-based exam, which, which is very very encouraging to see. Yes, that's very interesting. So I'd like to tackle your next book too, which is your last book, Origins, which deals with how the Earth shaped human history. Mm. So you write that our planet has been a leading protagonist in the story of humanity, influencing how we evolve. And I was wondering, could you maybe give us one or two of your favorite examples of how our planet's development influenced us? Hmm. So the previous book, The Knowledge, as we have already been talking about, Mm -hmm. was this thought experiment of a manual for how you could restart civilization from scratch and, and therefore was a way of exploring the science and technology that the human inventions and the discoveries 
that have enabled us to build the modern world that we all enjoy living in today. And what I wanted to do for this new book, for Origins, was zoom out even further on that perspective and look at not how human ingenuity or human resourcefulness have built the world that we live in today, but how features of the planet itself that we live on has had this leading role, this guiding influence in the whole of human history. So right back to our very origins as species, how are features of planet Earth important in driving our evolution to become so intelligent and so adept at language and tool use as a species? And then looking across the thousands of years of the history of civilization, of the rise and fall of different cultures and societies and the building of the modern nations we find today, and even how you can see the distinctive fingerprint of planetary processes behind current affairs that you read about in the newspaper or even in politics that there are some really good examples. In fact, some of my favourite examples from the whole of Origins, from the whole of the book, are where you can see planetary influences, geological influences on political voting maps. And one particular example of that is if you look at the southern states of the US, on the whole, in presidential elections for you know, decades going back into the past, this is on the whole a Republican Area. People tend to vote Republicans, although there's a very clear crescent-shaped arc of Democrat voting counties reaching across the southern states. And it turns out that Democrat voting band in the southern states of America matches perfectly with rocks beneath your feet, which are about 75 million years old. Pe people voted for Hillary Clinton rather than Donald Trump in the last presidential election in the, in the US largely, it seems, on the face of it, because of the age of rocks beneath their feet. And when you peel back the layers of history, of culture, of sociology, of economics and politics to get down to the ground, the rock and the planet beneath our feet, it turns out that those 75 million-year-old rocks um, were laid down effectively as a seafloor mud um, in, in Earth's deep past. And when they erode out of that rock, they give you a particularly fertile kind of soil, in particular for growing cash crops like cotton. So in the early to mid-1800s, on the plantations around the colonies of America, unfortunately employing slave labour at that period in history, people were uh, you know, kidnapped as slaves in Africa, taken across the Atlantic Ocean in slave ships and forced to work on these plantations along that band of 75 million-year-old rocks. And still today, even after hundreds of years of history since, after the Civil War, after emancipation from slavery, after the Civil Rights Movement, still today, the greatest concentration of black African-Americans still live along that band of 75 million-year-old rocks. People that still today are unfortunately afflicted with socioeconomic issues of, of poor salaries, of poor healthcare, of, of poor opportunities, and therefore people that are more likely to vote for the Democrats rather than the Republicans. So, of course, people aren't choosing who to vote for based on the age of rocks beneath their feet, not directly. But I think that example is a really powerful example of how if you go back through the sort of superficial layers of explanation, of, of politics, of economics, of culture and society, you get down to underlying layers of explanation 
of agriculture, of geology, of, of deep history. That's one of my favourite examples from Origins, from the book of this deep link between history and the way the world is today and planetary or geological causes. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to play advocate of the devil here if I can. <laughs> it seems like a, a really deterministic approach, like we can't help it that we are like who we are because we were born here and not there. And maybe in an increasingly global and mobile world that this might become less important? Well, importantly, I'm not arguing for geographical determinism. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying something had to happen with absolute certainty because of some rock or some mountain range. Mm -hmm. However, I think you'd be quite naive to believe that aspects of the landscape of mountain ranges or oceans or the distribution of resources like coal or iron or fertile soil have had no impact at all on the course of societies and human history. I think the appropriate position to take is somewhere in between those two, that it's not perfect determinism, but also there have been some influence of the underlying terrain and landscape and geology. So I was wondering if you also have any examples of how, I don't know, the current innovation hubs like Silicon Valley in Shenzhen or Shanghai in China were influenced by geography. So I I don't know offhand, off the top of my head, Mm -hmm. a particular example about a technology hub. There is a very nice example about why California and places like San Francisco and Los Angeles historically became so important. And this comes down to the fact of the way the atmosphere circulates high above our head. Turns out, once you understand it, it's very predictable how the atmosphere circulates between the equator and the poles, which creates the winds blowing across the surface. So for hundreds of years during the age of sail, If you wanted to get from A to B to trade or to explore, you basically had to follow the way the wind blows. And it turns out that if you want to sail from China across the Americas, if you want to sail from China across the Pacific Ocean, the only place that you can get to is the Californian coast. That's just where the winds deliver you to. That's the place where the atmospheric circulation delivers you to. So after crossing for many, many weeks, the greatest ocean on the planet these ships would need a port to call into to take on fresh drinking water, to take on fresh food, before then sailing along the coast to other parts of the Americas, and particularly going down to Mexico, where there's a lot of silver mines in this time in history of this Spanish Manila galleon route. So the very reason that places like San Francisco, San Jose, Los Angeles were founded in the first place as cities is simply that is the way the wind blows across mm-hmm. the Pacific Ocean. And that that's the, that blew my mind when I was researching this book, researching mm-hmm. for Origins, um, about how such a profound influence of something physical, something intrinsic about planet Earth, has then had over hundreds of years, um, and in some examples, some instances, thousands of years of human history. You also write about how the first humans were born of climate change and tectonics in East Africa, Which current development on the planet do you see as instrumental in shaping our future? Yeah, so in chapter one of Origins, I talk about how, in a sense, we are children of plate tectonics. It is 
a plate tectonic process in East Africa, and specifically the Great East African Rift Valley, that created the conditions to drive our evolution to become exquisitely intelligent, rather than any other adaptation that you see in other animals. And there are other implications of plate tectonics that I talk about throughout the book. Plate tectonics is one of these kind of recurring characters that comes back in many different disparate areas of history and of the book. But to pick out an example of current affairs and how global trade, global finance and the things you read about in the newspaper or on the internet news sites today are being dictated by planetary processes is to think about where a lot of the rare earth elements come from. So if you have a, a mobile phone or a tablet uh, or just the laptop, the computer you're using for this podcast right now, there will be 20, if not 30, or even more different kinds of metals in that piece of electronics. And many of these are rare earth elements, things you wouldn't even recognise the name of, but they absolutely underpin the way the modern world works. And it turns out that about 80% of all rare earth elements in the global supply have come from China. China is producing the lion's share of these modern technological metals. So in the ongoing trade dispute, the trade war between the United States and China, two of the largest superpowers on the planet today, it is China that holds the trump card in those negotiations. If you excuse the pun, mm-hmm. it's China that has the trump card and not the United States because they have control of the supply of rare earth elements, which the United States and anywhere else around the world can simply not afford to do without in their economy and the way the modern world is set up. And if you went back 100 years, it would have not been rare earth elements, it would have been access to iron or other metals. If you went back 3,000 years, it would have been access to copper and tin mines for the Bronze Age. So one of the recurring themes through history is that we through advances in our understanding and technological innovations, we start using different kinds of metal in our tools and technology, and therefore different regions on the planet become more or less strategically important because that's where you happen to find those particular resources. And right now, it is China that provides the critical technological metals that we are using around the planet. Mm-hmm. And it's not just the mobile phones. I think that they also have the materials to make car batteries for electric cars. Yeah, exactly. So linking back to something we were saying earlier about trying to make for a greener economy, to mm-hmm. trying to decarbonize our economy so we're not reliant on coal and oil as energy sources, but are now going to solar panels or wind turbines and not using you know, gas guzzling cars and trucks for transport, but perhaps battery-operated vehicles like the Tesla, a lot of those technologies are utterly reliant on rare earth elements and other elements like lithium for making those very high-capacity rechargeable batteries. So the kind of geostrategic landscape is shifting slightly as people are looking more and more towards things like sources of lithium or earth elements rather than simply just iron ore, like we would have been in in decades before. So do you think that now that the service industries are growing in importance and materials are perhaps becoming less important, 
Could that mean that we will become less dependent on our environment in that way, obviously? Well, I'm not sure that I would say that. So, you know, we are still manufacturing things, we are still making things, and therefore we still need to extract raw materials from the environment, where that means digging up metal ore from a mine or quarrying for different kinds of rock. We are still extracting raw materials and processing them into the final product. And that is going to continue. You know, you still need to be able to manufacture things for an economy. Certainly in the UK and particularly in London, it was Britain that underwent the Industrial Revolution first in the world. And in a kind of post-industrial economy that we have in Britain now, we don't mine substantial amounts of coal. We don't manufacture substantial amounts of things compared to, for example, Korea or China or India. And the UK economy is now much more geared towards service industries, information technologies. But that's not to say that elsewhere around the world, we still don't need to manufacture things. And the problem with climate change and reducing carbon emissions is you need to understand where that manufacturing is happening and therefore where most of those carbon emissions are likely to be occurring. But those are effectively just exported carbon emissions. Because if I buy a laptop in London, I'm still responsible, personally responsible for all of the pollution and carbon emissions that went into making that laptop that I bought, even if it was assembled on the other side of the world in China. So you already talked a bit about this, about the impact of people on our planet. So we have entered what some call the era of the Anthropocene, where humanity is now deeply influencing the Earth and often in very detrimental ways. How does that change the dynamics that you talk about in Origins, you think? So the Anthropocene and this idea that humanity is now the dominant environmental force on the planet. As a species, we are responsible for releasing more carbon dioxide into the air than volcanoes. We are responsible for moving more earth and sediment with our mining and quarrying and building canals and roads and cities than all the rivers around the world, than all the natural processes around the world. So this is why many geologists now arguing that we should label the current epoch as a new geological era, as the era of the Anthropocene, of the human era. And that is undeniably happening. We, we are changing the environment, we are changing the climate, we're changing the atmosphere and being irresponsible as a species in that respect and with, with this Anthropocene idea. And so I take that as given on page one of the knowledge that we are now having this immense influence on our planet and its environment. But what I've wanted to do with Origins, with this book, is look at the other side of that coin. It's only recently been true that humanity has been so powerful with our technology that we can start changing the environment of the entire planet. And, you know, before the the Industrial Revolution, that wasn't true. Before the invention of agriculture, that wasn't true. And so what I wanted to look at with Origins of this new book was the thousands of years of history before that, where the balance of power was very much in the other direction when it was the environment and natural forces and features of planet Earth that were directing our story, our history. Do you have any idea on what your next book will be? So it's something I've been thinking about a lot during the lockdown. We've um, just had it commissioned. It's just been bought by a couple of publishers. So I'm now working on a new book. And what I've enjoyed with the knowledge and then origins was working on this interface between history and science. 
science and technology for knowledge and then more kind of planetary science and, and geology and earth sciences for origins. And so what I want to do for the new book is look much more the kind of biological field, which ironically is my original field. I trained as a biologist at Oxford before doing my PhD and then getting involved in astrobiology research and then writing these books about various different science subjects. So in a sense, I'm kind of coming home and writing this new book about the influence of biology. Well, I'm really looking forward to that book. I'm also very much intrigued by the fact that you're an astrobiologist specialized in finding microbial life on Mars. So I wonder, knowing what you know, how long do you think that it will take for people to colonize Mars? Well, if we're talking about the search for simple single-celled life, bacteria-like life on Mars, clearly I hope that that will happen, that discovery will be made in my lifetime, in my career. And I think there's very good reasons to have that expectation. From all we've come to learn about the environment on Mars, particularly billions of years ago when life was first getting started here on Earth, Mars was itself a warmer, wetter planet. It was a habitable world. And what's very exciting is that this year NASA is launching a next-generation Mars rover to look for signs of life, look for the telltale chemical relics of simple life on Mars. And Europe, the European Space Agency, is sending its own next-generation Mars rover called ExoMars in two years' time now. So there's some very exciting missions, very exciting space probes just coming up on the horizon now that will hopefully give us some very exciting discoveries about the, the possibility of life on Mars. As to the question of taking human life to Mars of landing there with a human mission, building a, a colony there, that is very much anyone's guess. It's a very, very expensive thing to do. It's a very, very technologically difficult thing to do. But with people like Jeff Bezos and uh, Elon Musk talking very seriously about space exploration, human space flight, space tourism, colonizing Mars, perhaps it's just a matter of time. Where there's a will, there's a way. And if you have billions of dollars to invest in it, that's a surefire way of getting something achieved more quickly than was going on in previous decades when it was done on a kind of a national superpower level, when it was, you know, USSR or the United States in a space race against each other. So which approach do you think is more realistic? Elon Musk's city on Mars or Jeff Bezos' floating space colony? I think they're all parts of the same solution. The reason that previously human spaceflight was done only by superpowers is because it is very, very expensive. So a nation will fund that basically as a prestige project. The United States wanted to win the space race to, you know, bite its nose, at, bite its thumb at the, the USSR, the Russians, because that was basically a proxy for intercontinental ballistic missiles in the Cold War. And when private individuals and companies, corporations, are trying to explore space, you have to make a profit from it, because otherwise it's completely unsustainable. And this is why people are talking seriously about space tourism. One way of making a profit out of space is simply to charge people a fare to take them there in the way that, you know, cruise liners charge a fare to take people across the ocean and provide them with an interesting experience along the way. Or you can look towards industrial applications and start thinking about what are the things in space that we'd want to go and mine or extract that would have value back on Earth 
so we can bring it back and sell it and therefore fund space exploration. And this is where people talk about mining asteroids for rare earth elements, for, for platinum group metals, or perhaps mining the surface of the moon for helium-3, which could make an ideal fuel for fusion energy. So these are all parts, all facets of, of the same solution, I think. So do you have any idea what will be the biggest difference between cities on Earth and those on Mars and on the Moon? And could building those help us build better cities on Earth as well? Well, the main problem with trying to build a colony or a habitat or a city on either the Moon or Mars is the environment is intrinsically not compatible with human life. If you stepped out onto the surface of Mars or the Moon without a spacesuit on, you'll be dead within a minute. There is no oxygen to breathe in the air on Mars. There's no atmosphere whatsoever on the Moon. There's very little water to be found on the Moon. So the basic things and stuff that you need to keep people alive and support a city are hard to come by on the Moon or Mars. So a lot of the problems and challenges we'll have to solve will be about what do you take with you? What do you launch from Earth at enormous expense and take it with you to, let's say, to Mars? And what do you gather when you get there? How can you live off the land by perhaps extracting water from ice deep underground or turning carbon dioxide in the thin atmosphere of Mars into rocket fuel so you can then come back again? So there's a kind of very kind of pioneer spirit behind this. How can you live off the land when you get there and be resilient and resourceful and self-sufficient rather than having to launch everything from Earth. And so, yeah, I think by solving these difficult problems, thinking about a city on Mars, that can help inform us about more sustainable ways of building and running cities on Earth in terms of being much better with recycling things rather than just throwing them away in landfill. There's a lot of overlap between sustainable cities on Earth and cities on somewhere like Mars where you have to be sustainable to survive. So if we ever start living on Mars or on the Moon, do you think that this will change us as a species? Well, one of the arguments that are made is the reason we'd want to start putting self-sustaining uh, habitats or cities on Mars is to not have all of our eggs in one basket. And this, I guess, links to my book we were talking about earlier about the knowledge that if there were to be some global catastrophe to befall the Earth, an asteroid strike, a nuclear war, whatever, it might make sense. In fact, it's very sensible, I think, to have an off-world presence that can support itself if everything goes dark on the Earth and then at some point in the future perhaps come back and recolonize our home or recolonize the Earth. So in the sense of the deep future of humanity, that makes sense. But we're talking many, many years in the future, you know, perhaps a century or more, when we'd have that kind of capability of supporting a whole city self-sustainably on Mars, that they could come back to Earth if some kind of catastrophe would happen here. So in that sense, it's almost like an insurance policy for the human species. But by doing that, we still cannot afford to make such catastrophic mistakes on Earth and the environment here as we are already making. Having a colony on Mars does not excuse us. It doesn't get us out of jail in terms of stopping pollution and climate change and you know ocean acidification, all these other environmental problems on Earth. We still need to you know, keep our house in order here. So astrobiology is an interdisciplinary science. And I was wondering... 
if this mix of different sciences and approaches had an impact on the way that you may think and learn? Yeah, absolutely. It, it has, I think. So all of my books that I've written so far have been intrinsically interdisciplinary books. It, it is science and technology, or it is planetary science blended with history in the case of Origins. And so I mentioned already that my first degree was in biology. And when I started my PhD at University College London, I had a wonderful opportunity at the time to take on a PhD on the interface of biology and something else, to, to build for myself an interdisciplinary PhD project. And so I look back on my PhD years with great fondness. It was a wonderful academic challenge to be interdisciplinary from the outset. And I think perhaps that's given me the confidence to be out of my home discipline, to be kind of out of my comfort zone, uh, to look at these overlaps between different areas of, of knowledge and understanding, to, to be interdisciplinary, not just in my research, but in, in the books and the science and, and the journalism that I do. Mm -hmm. So do you think that science should be more interdisciplinary because it's quite siloed often because I, I remember my last podcast conversation was with David Christian mm. from the Big History Project. Yeah. And he said that was exactly why his Big History approach was really frowned upon in the scientific community. Yeah, absolutely. I would agree with David on that, that his Big History approach, and clearly Origins is along similar lines to Dave Christian's Big History approach, about combining history with a little bit of cosmology, a little bit of planetary science, a little bit of this and that, and being interdisciplinary about the fields you approach. And going back to what we were saying earlier about you know, kind of education and schools, in my day, it was very much physics lessons, Tuesday, 10 o'clock in the morning, chemistry, Thursday afternoons. And, and there wasn't very much links or connections drawn between different areas of science, which is a very artificial way of carving up human knowledge, of course. So again, I think one of the ways that the education system can improve is by being a little bit more interdisciplinary, showing those deep connections between different areas of understanding, between different classes, different modules, because I think that makes it then easier to understand. If you can see the relevance of something you're learning to other areas, it, it kind of makes it more relevant. It makes it easier to, to remember. Okay, well, thank you so much. I think that that's it for today. Thank you so much for joining the NextWorks Innovation Talks, Lewis. No problem at all. Thank you ever so much for inviting me. I very much enjoyed this chat. Thank you. This was NextWorks Innovation Talks. Thank you so much for joining us. And follow us on nextworks.com if you're hungry for more innovation news and events. <laughs>